Heavenly Father, as has been our prayer throughout this series, we pray that you would transform our minds. Please give us the mind of Christ. Help us to think with his mind so that in whatever circumstance we might have joy and peace and satisfaction in you. And we ask that in his name. Amen. There's a very little known fairy tale in the first edition of Brothers Grimm about a fisherman and his wife who were very, very, very poor. They lived in a tiny little shack which they had to share with with animals. And one day the fisherman was out on the sea and he he caught a magic fish. It's not a true story. And uh, the the magic fish said, I'll I'll let you go. Uh, Sorry, if you let me go, I'll I'll grant you a wish. And so the fisherman thought very hard and and he said, okay, I, I wish that I have a proper brick house. So he let the fish go and lo and behold, when he got back home, Instead of his shack and all the animals, there was a brick house. And that evening, his wife was absolutely delighted. But come morning, she wasn't content. If the fish can give us a house, then surely he can give us a castle. So go out and catch that fish, and don't come back until he grants my wish. So off uh, the fisherman goes, rather reluctantly, uh, spends ages trying to catch this stupid fish. Eventually, he finds him again and wishes for a castle. And he lets him go, and lo and behold, when he heads back home, he has a castle. Not only that, but all the servants and all the trappings of having a castle. His wife is very, very happy that evening. But come the morning, she's not content. What use is it having a castle if we're not king and queen? So go out and catch that fish, and don't come back until he grants our wish. So the fisherman reluctantly goes out, catches the fish once again, wishes to be made king and queen, and lo and behold, when he comes back home... They have all the power of the nation at their disposal. And that night, his wife is very, very happy. But come morning, she isn't content. What use is it having all earthly power if we don't have all spiritual power also? I want to be made Pope. And so the fisherman went out and tried to catch this fish. Go back and catch this fish and don't come back until he grants my wish. The fisherman goes out, he catches the fish, grants, asks for his wife to be made Pope. And when uh, he returns home, lo and behold, his wife is surrounded by cardinals. She's been made Pope. And that, that night, his wife is finally satisfied. But come morning, she isn't content. What's wrong, my dear? asked the husband. What could you possibly wish for? Now you have all earthly power, all spiritual power. I want to be made God, she said. The fisherman, slightly perturbed by this, he goes, uh, scratches his head, I'm not sure that's a great idea. He said, no, you must. Go out and catch that fish and don't come back until he grants my wish. So off he goes, very reluctantly, tries to find this fish. Eventually he catches him, wishes that his wife would be made God. And lo and behold, when he comes back home, he finds out that he's back to living in poverty in a tiny stable surrounded by animals. It's a silly story. I can't vouch for its theology at all. But it poses an important question. What is the secret of contentment? Because here we are in one of the wealthiest cities in the world, in one of the wealthiest parts of the wealthiest city in the world, and yet many of us, we aren't content. We aren't content with our homes and our possessions. We aren't content with our jobs and our life situations. We aren't content with the amount of free time we have. And in our heads, we tell ourselves, "If, if I only just have that one thing, then I'll be content, then I'll be happy. And we get that thing and we're not happy, we're not satisfied, and then we want something else. Our lack of contentment 
it not only has a, a sort of negative impact on ourselves, but also has a negative impact on, on those around us. Because we're, if we're so preoccupied with, with longing for what we don't have, then we'll struggle to be generous with what we do have. We'll be very reluctant to give up our time, our money, our homes, our love. Because we think if we do that, then surely we'll be less content. Do you see, contentment and generosity, that they're the flip sides of the same coin. Well, our passage today is a rather surprising end to a letter we've been looking at all term. Remember the Apostle Paul, he's in prison in Rome. He's on death row. He's awaiting execution. And the church he's writing to, they're in a pretty bad situation as well. Elsewhere, we're told they're experiencing severe persecution and extreme poverty. So given Paul's situation, we expect his letter to go something like this. Dear Philippians, I really, really, really need your money. I'm an apostle. Get me out of here. Love, Paul. And given the Philippians situation, we expect their response to be something like this. Sorry, Paul. Can't give a penny. Still really poor. Hugs and kisses, the Philippians. Given their mutually bad situations, what we don't expect is for Paul to write saying, thanks for the gift, but no more money, please. I'm quite content with what I have. And we don't expect the Philippians to be as generous as they are. So right today we're asking, what is that secret of contentment? What is the secret of generosity? Well, you'll see our first point on your sheets. Contentment must be learned from Christ. In verse 10, Paul begins by, by thanking God for the Philippians' gift, but he doesn't want them to get the wrong end of the stick. He doesn't want them to think he's after more money. So look down with me. Follow with me in verse 10, if you would. Paul writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned for me, but you didn't have an opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be like to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Baffling, isn't it? Baffling to think of Paul in prison on death row saying, I don't need any more aid. I have enough. I'm complete, he says. How on earth can he say that? Did you notice twice he says he has to learn contentment? It wasn't given to him in a moment like that when he became a Christian. He didn't gain it like that simply from listening to a talk on the topic of contentment. No, he had to learn it. He was educated in the school of hard knocks. So through poverty and imprisonment, through humiliation and hardship, Paul learned the secret of Christian contentment. And do you know what that secret is? Look down at verse 13. Paul writes, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I think this probably wins the prize for the most misquoted verse in the entire Bible. You see rugby players with it tattooed on their wrists. And you see um, posters in in classrooms with it on. And, And we're led to believe that whatever we put our minds to, whatever it may be, you can do it. So you can pass that exam. You can do it. 
You can play in the Premier League. You can do it. You can fly to the moon if you want to because I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's not what this means. The everything here refers to all of the suffering mentioned in the previous verses. We're able to endure when we're weak because Christ is our strength. Back in the third century, there was a a church leader called John Christum. And he was hauled before the Roman emperor, Arcadius, for for constantly talking about Jesus. And he'd been ordered to stop again and again. The emperor told them that if he didn't stop, he would be banished. And John said, you can't banish me. The whole world is my father's kingdom. Then, Then I'll take away your life. You can't. For my life is hid in Christ in God. Then I'll take away all your treasure. You can't. My treasure is hid where my heart is. Then I'll drive you away from all of your friends. You can't. For I have one friend from whom you can never separate me. I defy you, Emperor Arcadius, because you can do me no harm. As a brave man. Friends, if you want to be content, whatever your situation, realize how much you already have in Christ Jesus. Consider your unshakable righteousness before God. Consider your citizenship in heaven. Consider your resurrection body guaranteed to come. Consider such things and you will have contentment when needy, strength when weak, joy when suffering. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. If Christ is our strength, Well, we'd do well to follow his example, wouldn't we? Him who, being in very nature God, didn't consider quality of God something to be exploited, but he made himself nothing. He was born into poverty in a stable surrounded by animals. And as an adult, he had nowhere to lay his head. That's our king. That's the one we follow. Friends, your contentment does not depend on whether or not you have a cold this week. Your contentment doesn't depend on getting that gadget you want off your Amazon wish list. It doesn't depend on how successful your children are doing at school. It doesn't depend on having that expensive holiday, or at least a better holiday than your neighbor. As lovely as all those things are, it depends on how much you realize what you have in Christ. We learn contentment from him. But our second point is this. Look down. Generous partnership reflects the mind of Christ. Follow with me in verse 14. Verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again. When I was in need. The word shared here can also be translated as partnered. Paul is saying that these these Philippian Christians, by by suffering with him for the sake of the gospel, through by supporting him in finance and aid, they became partners with him in the gospel. And this is a helpful uh, corrective for us, I think. We might be tempted to think that the the only people doing gospel ministry are are full-time Christian workers. Uh, missionaries, uh, ministers, youth workers, evangelists, people like that. They're doing the work 
and, and we're more sort of beneficiaries or, or spectators. And maybe we've been trained to think like that. But that's wrong. No, we're all called to be gospel partners. Someone once compared this to being an agent. So imagine, if you will, that you are the, the agent for comedy duo Anton Deck. I'm sorry about that, but that's the best you could do. And uh, your job is to be behind the scenes. You're there to, to haggle for the best contracts for them. You're there to work hard to promote their TV shows. Uh, you're, you're trying to get the media coverage at all the best events. They might be up front. Uh, they, they might have all the talent, or, or not in their case. But without you, they couldn't do a thing. You, you're partnering with them. And of course, the way the illustration breaks down is, is that our motivation isn't financial. I remember the Philippians, they sent aid to Paul when they had nothing, when they're in extreme poverty. No, our motivation is that we share the mind of Christ. We've seen this throughout the letter, but back in verse 10, Paul rejoices because the Philippians renewed their concern for him, or literally their mind for him. That, that same word. They were thinking with the mind of Christ. Uh, like Jesus, they were considering others as greater than themselves. They, they didn't look to their own interests, but to the interests of others. They were thinking with the mind of Christ. It's a generous partnership. It reflects the mind of Christ. And you'll see it will have three effects. You'll see on your handout. The first one's this. Clearly, it will be for others' benefit. I quite like to think that Paul closed this letter with a bit of a wry smile on his face. In verse 22... He's, uh, he's, he's talking about who's sending greetings. And remember, Paul's being imprisoned in Rome. He's there at Caesar's request. He, he, his chains were supposed to show that Caesar's in power. But he subtly drops in here in verse 22 that some of Caesar's household send greetings to the church in Philippi. It seems as if he wants them to know that their, their partnership with Paul is having a real impact. Even though Paul's in Caesar's house, as it were, some of Caesar's house have turned to see Jesus as Lord. The Philippians might be all the way over in Macedonia, but their partnership in the gospel is having a real impact. He wants that to come across. Well, in the same way, we, we can't all be missionaries in Bologna, can we? But we share the mind of Christ with JP and Sue. And by praying for, for them, uh, by giving generously to them, we partner with them in that gospel work in Bologna. In the same way, we can't, we can't all be downstairs with the youth and children, although when the children go downstairs, it seems as if half our congregation do leave. We can't all be downstairs, but by praying for parents and for Ross and, and his teams, by giving generously to support that ministry, we are partnering with them. And looking back over the years, I'm, I'm enormously grateful for friends who have partnered with me. Where, I, where I've been, and most of the churches I've served in, they didn't have the means to, 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 to support um, us fully. In fact, uh, I think nearly our entire staff team where I worked in Dagenham were funded by external giving. Uh, people and, and churches elsewhere, many of whom didn't know us personally, they gave and gave because they were thinking with the mind of Christ. They became partners with us in that gospel work. So just think for a moment about yourself. Just think of that Christian worker who discipled you. Think of that event where you first heard about Christ, maybe a camp or, or maybe a church. Now think of those buildings you met in, those meals that you enjoyed. 
See, these resources were only made available because someone somewhere was thinking with the mind of Christ and, and generously gave in order that we might be saved. See, generous partnership is for others' benefit. But next, notice verse 17. It's also to our credit. This is strange. Look at verse 17. Paul writes, Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. Now, we need to be careful here. Paul can't possibly mean that generous giving somehow buys our way into heaven. He spent most of this letter saying we're saved through Christ alone and not at all to do with what we do, our giving or whatever. So if you're a visitor here today, please understand this. We don't want your money. Please do not give anything to us. We're not after your money. But very sadly, a number of people do teach that our giving does have an impact on where we go. Sadly, the, the Roman Catholic Church still teaches that giving money can speed your way to heaven. They teach a place called purgatory, which is found nowhere in your Bibles. And they say, yeah, if you give, you can cut down your time in purgatory if you buy indulgences from the church. So St. Peter's Basilica in Rome is a beautiful building. I've walked around it a number of times. But it was built by the sale of indulgences which is quite scary if you, if you think it was built at the cost of thousands and thousands of people's souls, people who thought their own works could save them. Beautiful, but terrifying. Another thing verse 17 can't possibly mean is that by generous giving, you can have prosperity now. Again, this false teaching has, has infected so much of the world, and, and it goes something like this. Look at me, I'm this impressive, um, rich evangelist with these perfect teeth. And um, if, you, if you give your money to me... God will give you ten times back what you've given. Well, tell that message to Paul in Rome, in prison. Tell that message to the Philippians in poverty and suffering. Did they not have enough faith? This prosperity gospel is damnable lies, and we must be aware of it wherever we come across it. So if it doesn't mean those things, what does Paul mean? <laughs> What does Paul mean in verse 17 when he says he's, he's looking what may be credited to their account? Well, funnily enough, back in chapter 1, he uses the very similar phrase to describe what he hopes for the Philippians on the day when Christ returns. So verse 17, it's, it's not about how Christians can get saved now. It's about how generous believers will be rewarded in glory. It's not about how they get saved. It's, it's the reward that comes from saved believers. And this should be a massive encouragement for us as we consider how generous we should be in our giving. Because to be honest, we don't often see the exact impact of our giving, do we? That the standing order goes out, and we, often we don't know exactly how it's used. We don't know precisely how my pound or whatever amount I give is being used to God's glory. But do you know what? On the day of Christ, you will know. You will know completely you will see the fruit of your giving. So Jesus says that you know, when we enter glory, there'll be a welcoming committee, people welcoming us into, into our heavenly home. And we can imagine um, on that day we'll be greeted by our friends, our family, our church, people saying, hello, welcome, good to see you. But imagine on that day there are a bunch of people there you've never met before. And you're like, who are you? And so, well, I, I live in Bologna, or I lived in Bologna, but because of your giving, I came to Christ thank you. Who are you? I, I live in Switzerland. I'm a Jewish person, but I, I heard about Jesus through the work of Stephen Pash, whom you supported. Thank you. 
Um, I live in Manchester. And uh, because of your generosity to Paul and Jill Jump, I heard about Jesus. Thank you. We are partners with these people. It's to our credit. Well, finally, gospel partnership is to God's glory. And uh, as I read, notice how, how Paul describes their gospel generosity in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me. It says this. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you notice Paul's use of language there? He borrows all of that language taken from the temple in Jerusalem temple worship and, and he's applying it to their giving he's saying that their gospel generosity is as much an act of spiritual worship as singing as prayer as reading the scriptures as, as, as teaching sunday school so money isn't a sordid shameful topic which we shouldn't ever talk about no nor is it an aspect of following jesus which we can sort of ignore or maybe delegate to certain very keen Christians. Not at all. In fact, as we discovered in Luke in, in last term series, Jesus talks about money more than any other area of discipleship. Remember in one place he says, it's better to give than to receive. This is an act of worship. So may I ask, are you thinking with the mind of Christ in this area? Because those who want to see others coming to Jesus, others, people who, whose eyes aren't set on the present, but on the future reward on the day of Christ, are people whose concern is to give God glory forever and ever, they will partner with gospel ministers and they'll give generously. And I'm aware that talks like this often throw up more questions than, than answers and, and, and often thinking, well, how much should I give? What about me in my particular circumstance? I can't answer everything now, but please do grab one of the, one of the finance team. Uh, Nate's over there. He's going to wave his hand. There he is. If you've got questions, go and grab Nate. If you've got questions about what this text says, please come and ask me. There's a flyer at the back which says giving on it, and that might be a helpful way of, of, of thinking about these things in a bit more detail and uh, look at our website as well. Um, please do think about these things. But I'll close with this. There was an advert on TV a few, a few years ago. I think it was a Christmas advert. It may have been a John Lewis advert. They're always good, aren't they? And it was so good, it moved me to tears. It nearly moved me to tears. Hardened man. But there's a boy who, who couldn't wait for Christmas. He's impatiently counting down the days on his advent calendar. He's, he's staring at the clock in school, hoping it would tick that much faster. He's gazing out the window, hoping it might snow. We can see him constantly fidgeting, aching for, the, for Christmas Day to come along. And then come Christmas Eve, we see him wolfing down his, 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 his dinner. He runs to bed early, and then he wakes up in the morning, and it's Christmas Day. And as he, wake, as he gets out of bed, he glances at all of the gifts he's been given, and he walks straight past them. And he goes to his own cupboard, and he opens up his cupboard, and he pulls out this poorly wrapped Christmas gift. And he creeps across the corridor, opens his parents' bedroom, wakes them up, and with the biggest smile on his face, he hands them this gift. It's better to give than to receive. Friends, if you want joy and contentment, instead of doing what the world does, 
Try giving. Try giving. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who though rich beyond measure, for our sake became poor, so that we might have riches with you. Thank you for everything that we have in Christ. Thank you for that peace and that joy that we can enjoy now, whatever our circumstance. And we pray, Lord, you'll grant us contentment, that thinking with the mind of Christ, we might be generous people. And we ask that on that day that we enter glory, there'll be many there on account of our generosity. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.